Hello everyone, this is Justin Bullock, the co-host of Bush School Uncorked. I'm here today with our podcast producer, Faith. Hello everybody. You may recognize Faith if you've been listening to our recent episode where we were giving her quite a hard time about being on this journey down to Brownsville without a passport. So she was unable to join us for the all the pieces of the trip. We gave her a, a, a pretty good hard time last night, I think. We're recording this today and the day after our episode with uh, Jonathan Coopersmith. And I thought I'd set the stage for you a little bit as to what we're talking about today and what our trip was about and why we're taking the time to do this interview. But we're going to get to, uh, Faith has a few questions for me. Uh, she'll be the interviewer as we move on, asking about some of my perceptions of the trip we took. So I wanted to take just a few moments and give you a little bit of background information um, about this trip that we're going to be referring to. So through the podcast, we've been talking about that we're going to do a short series. It's probably going to end up being two or three episodes on asylum seekers uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border. And we'll have some other opportunities where you'll get more details about the numbers and some of the policy specifics. But the the big overview, um, as you may or may not be aware, is there's been an influx of asylum seekers from Central and South America into the U.S., um, and we, we'll talk to some experts on that about what those uh, um, what those situations are, maybe what's led to some of that. But to kind of cut to the chase, this has led to the migrant protection protocols, uh, which began earlier uh, last year. And the Migrant Protection Protocols, and this is coming from the Department of Homeland Security's uh, website, uh, they describe it as a U.S. government action whereby certain foreign individuals entering or seeking admission to the U.S. from Mexico illegally or without proper documentation may be returned to Mexico and wait outside of the U.S. for the duration of their immigration proceedings, where Mexico will provide them with all appropriate humanitarian protections for the duration of their stay. Okay, now this is um, <clears throat> something instituted by the DHS, which we'll talk more at a different time about some of the challenges with this, what this, how this actually fits in with U.S. and international law about how asylum seekers are uh, to be treated um, in general, historically, uh, in the U.S. and what's become kind of the international norm from the U.N. and from the American, the Organization of American States is that when asylum seekers show up at your door, um, you process them in your, your country. The code in the U.S. essentially says that uh, anyone that has a set of credible fears, um, and the credible fears uh, include uh, persecution related to race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion, if you are, um, the way it's worded on the uh, U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services website is that every year people come to the United States seeking protection because they have suffered persecution or fear that they will suffer persecution due again to uh, one of those categories. And the way the, the my read of the U.S. Code, and again we'll talk to other individuals, uh, legal experts about this, that anyone within a year of arriving uh, in the U.S. can apply for asylum. The migrant protection protocols um, have kind of uh, taken a different approach to this, um, which is the way it's uh, 
uh, kind of playing out on the ground based on our read and based on what we've been able to read from the Human Rights Watch organization is that they're kind of uh, blat um, blanketly sending those seeking asylum in the U.S. where their case isn't 100% clear cut, which these cases uh, rarely are. And these people are people that are fleeing their countries um, for a variety of, of reasons. Um, these people are then being sent back to Mexico um, from usually where they enter into Texas uh, or Arizona and a few other places. Um, they're being sent to Mexico to wait. Um, there's a nice report that we found out uh, that we uh, found from the Human Rights Watch organization that actually was uh, published just a few days ago, about one week ago, as we were getting ready to take our trip down to the border. The title of the article was U.S. Remain in Mexico Program Harming Children. Again, this is the Migrant Protection Protocols uh, as the official name for them. Uh, and it says families seeking asylum are exposed to violence, illness, and trauma. And I just want to start with reading a few pieces from this article at the Human Rights Watch Organization. Um, a United States government program, the one we've been talking about, exposes children as well as their parents seeking asylum to serious risk of assault, mistreatment, and trauma while waiting for their cases to be heard. Uh, Human Rights Watch said today, again, this being February 12th, for this report in a joint investigation report. Human Rights Watch, working with Stanford University's Human Rights and Trauma Mental Health Program and Wilmette University's Child and Family Advocacy Clinic, found that the U.S. Migrant Protection Protocols Program, commonly known as Remain in Mexico, compelled families with children to wait in unsafe environments in Mexico for many months. Parents said that prolonged immigration court proceedings fear of being incarcerated, and uncertainty about the future took a toll on their family's health, safety, and well-being. Many described changes in their children's behavior, saying they became more anxious or depressed after U.S. authorities sent them to Mexico to await their hearings. Quote, the conditions, threat, the conditions threats to safety, and sense of uncertainty asylum seekers face while waiting in Mexico creates chronic and severe psychological stress for children and families, said Dr. Ryan Matlaw, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine. <clears throat> Dr. Matt Law went on to say, we know that these, type, these forms of pervasive, unresolved complex trauma can lead to significant long-term negative consequences for child development and family functioning. Um, just a little bit more here, and then, and then we'll move on. The article goes on to say, Human Rights Watch and other investigators interviewed parents and children from 60 families seeking asylum between November 2019 and January of 2020. Most families were from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, with a few from Cuba, Ecuador, and Peru. The investigators also spoke with lawyers, doctors, shelter providers, faith leaders, and um, Mexican officials. We go on here to say, under the Migrant Protection Protocols, U.S. immigration officials have required most Spanish-speaking asylum seekers who arrive in the U.S. through Mexico to go to Mexico while their cases are heard. Parents said that while waiting in Mexico, they or their children were beaten, harassed, sexually assaulted, or abducted. Some said Mexican police harassed or extorted money from them. Most said they were constantly fearful and easily identified as targets um, for violence. Just a couple more pieces here. Asylum hearings under the Migrant Protection Protocols raise various due process concerns, according to Human Rights Watch. To get to court hearings in the U.S., families must report to a designated border crossing point, which sometimes requires them to arrive as early as 3 a.m. in unsafe locations. Those sent to Mexicali or Pedras Negras must make journeys of 100 to 340 miles to reach their designated border crossing point. 
All family members, including young children, must appear and sit quietly for each court hearing. Families interviewed said that they were frequently required to wait for hours for a brief hearing, and agents have told parents they risked being sent to me- back to Mexico without seeing a judge if their children made a noise or could not sit still. Families said that after each her- hearing, they were locked up in very cold, often overcrowded immigration holding cells with men and teenage boys held separately, sometimes overnight or longer, before U.S. officials returned them to Mexico. Some said they were considering abandoning their asylum cases because their children were afraid of being detained again. Another note here, all governments are obligated to respect the customary international law principle of non-refoulement, the prohibition of returning a person to a country where they are at risk of persecution, torture, or other cruel or inhuman treatment. Governments are also obligated to extend specific protections to children, whether traveling alone or with families, including by giving primary consideration to their best interests. Here's some more on this that uh, we'll come back to in terms of numbers, but I just wanted to give you an overview before we jump into some of our experience there this weekend um, to what Human Rights Watch and Stanford had found. Literally, at the time (laughs) this report came out, uh, we were traveling on, what, the 13th? And this report came out on the 12th. So it gave us a good kind of detailed um, study that was done, uh, again, in conjunction with uh, Stanford and Human Rights Watch about what the uh, some of the conditions for the asylum seekers that have been sent back to Mexico to wait on their cases. We were in Brownsville, Texas, um, which is where we were staying to uh, to help serve some of these asylum seekers uh, food and education. Over the course of the weekend, we worked with um, World Central Kitchen, which is a nonprofit organization. There's about two full-time uh, staff in Brownsville, Um, that coordinate with volunteers to take about 1,500 meals over the border into Matamoros seven days a week. Uh, We help prepare those hot meals and then help deliver them over to the refugee camp. Um, On Sunday, uh, we also help Team Brownsville, who is also partnering with uh, the World Central Kitchen to help provide uh, relief and aid into the the encampment. We worked with them on Sunday morning uh, at what they call the Esquilita, which was uh, in four separate tents, uh, helping provide um, some basic education for the children while they're being uh, uh, held in these tents to wait on their immigration hearings. So that is the background. Faith has agreed to lead the interview, asking me a few questions to report back to you about our experiences. Go ahead, Faith. All right, so... Going down to Brownsville, we had about eight hours to just like mentally prepare ourselves for everything. And you had mentioned actually that even before and you were still trying to put yourself in a frame of mind where you could actually handle everything. Um, what were your initial thoughts of everything? And did your initial thoughts meet the expectations that you had? Yeah, that's a good question. So... We had a guide um, who had been down there before. Uh, Faith is a current Bush School student, but a former uh, Bush School student by the name of Mary Lou Hare had uh, organized or had been down to the camp with Team Brownsville and served before. So she said to us, "There's some things you can expect. One, it's really impossible to describe the situation with any uh, degree of uh, visualization before you arrive." Um, so I had mostly kept my expectations about what the scene would be kind of open. I didn't really know what to expect. I had some visions of what a tent city might look like, um, but 
uh, wasn't completely clear to me what we might find ourselves seeing. Um, one of the helpful things that Mary Lou did was kind of described how the process affects you emotionally as you, uh, as you uh, go and, and participate in serving in this environment. So her advice to me was, hey, on the first day, we're going to be working a lot. We help prepare the meals. We worked from about 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. preparing the meals. Uh, I guess the first day was only to about 4. And then we uh, met at the International Bridge at 5. Uh, the We actually met at the bus station in Brownsville and then carried the food over on the International bridge and so she's like this is a lot of physical work you'll be very engaged uh with the team there was probably about 20 additional volunteers that were with us on the first day there's like, look the first day is you just go into service mode which is something that i have some familiarity with um and so um when we got there, we just went into work mode. And as that was happening, it felt a little weird uh, because you're in this big tent they had set up to feed people and you're laughing with the, the, the people you're serving the meals, you're talking to them, you're saying hello, asking them how they are playing with the children, um, trying to just kind of bring smiles to people's faces. And that is its own type of, um, kind of, a, um, exhaustion after several hours of that. And so Mary Lou had said, look, the first day you're just going to be tired. You're not going to be able to process what's going on or what you're seeing. You're just going to try to get through the work. And that's exactly what happened to me on the first day. Um, I was tired at the end. We gathered with our team um, and had some dinner and tried to debrief. But it more was like, I guess, how people describe shock. Like you're seeing all of these people being held in a tent camp that have fled their countries and are trying to get to the country in which I live, Right. And our country has responded by sending them back, sending them to Mexico to wait for six months, eight months for their first hearing and a a longer process for actually being granted asylum. So first day, as Mary Lou had warned me, you're just tired. And she had said day two, when you get up in the morning and you have some quiet time, because we didn't start our activities till one in the afternoon, that it will hit you that what you were actually doing was at a refugee camp and, um, and serving refugees. And that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, as, as faith witnessed, I was uh, Saturday morning. I was on the phone with my wife. We were getting ready to meet up with our team. And I was just kind of checking in with her. And I was trying to explain to her what we had done the previous day. And about two thirds of the way through the conversation, I actually was not able to finish describing kind of the events from the previous day um, and found myself kind of in tears um, then and again the next day um, on Saturday evening as we were gathered as a group having our final kind of meal together with uh, with Faith and I and, and Mary Lou and her father and who had traveled uh, down as well and a friend of hers, uh, Angela. Angela. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was the five of us that were spending a good bit of time together. And so, um, you know, it uh, in some ways it's what you expect, right? You're showing up, you're serving some people with food in other ways. It's um, it's traumatizing, I think. I mean, not it's certainly tra- more traumatizing for the people there, um, but you get some sense of of the trauma. And in the days following, you know, it's um, Mary Lou and and people that had served before kind of say it kind of sticks with you. And uh, you know, I've said to a couple students here that have asked about it, and a couple people since that um, it it feels like how people describe a traumatic event. So I've had flashbacks. I've had dreams the last couple of days that are very vivid. Um, I, just this morning, I was trying to relate the story 
to a, a lady we work with here um, and, you know, couldn't finish the story this morning as I was trying to tell it. Um, and so, yeah, we had some from the mental uh, side of it. We had some preparation from Mary Lou and it was exactly as she described it, which was helpful to me. And, and, and I wanted to share that first so I didn't forget to anyone that does choose to serve in these kind of environments that you do go through a little bit of your own uh, process. Um, so I didn't have good ideas. There, there are tents everywhere. So that looked like what I had expected. Um, they have uh, gotten some donations. There's a big tent where we served the food that um, host, uh, housed probably a thousand people at one time to have meals together. So they do have some space for that. They have some some modest sized tents to hold the children for uh, for school time. So those were kind of things I didn't have a reference point for. Um, the other thing that kind of struck me, I don't know what this says about me or about the the refugee camp, but you know, um, they, they're just people, right? They're, they're just people who look like they're going through a hard time. They're all kind of, they look like you and I, they're, they're dressed similar to you and I, they, they're able, they're just people. And so uh, it's not that that wasn't what I was expecting, but sometimes, you know, in some parts of the world where, uh, where, where refugees exist, there's, um, a lack of clothing, um, people aren't able to have access to basic uh, hygiene, and at least in this case, um, the there are places to kind of bathe and wash your clothes, and in general, people uh, have have clothing. Shoes are kind of hit or miss across particularly some of the children, uh, so not everyone has access to shoes or the like appropriate clothing for weather. Um, but uh, it was it was kind of uh, kind of, I guess, unnerving in some ways about how these are just unlucky people that look just like you and I. So I guess those, I don't know if that answers your question yeah, or yeah, not, yeah, but absolutely. that's my long-winded response. <laughs> yeah, so um, as a student, like from, from the student perspective, and I told you this while we were actually in Brownsville, I thought it was really interesting just seeing a lot of the things that I've learned in the classroom for the past year, year and a half actually being applied in a real-world situation. Mm -hmm. So from an educator, educator's perspective, um, how are you going to implement some of the lessons that you've learned from this experience into your teaching? Like, what are some ways you could do that? Yeah, so um, a couple of things uh, from the educator standpoint that stuck, with, that stuck with me. So one, it highlighted kind of the importance of on-the-ground experiences, um, so experiential learning. Like, even for me, studying the asylum-seeking uh, situation in the U.S., being there on the ground and seeing it firsthand is a very different experience. Uh, so one, I think it highlights the importance within the School of Public Service, within the School of Public Administration, of getting as much experiential learning as possible. Um, so from the Bush School standpoint, you know, I think it highlights even more the importance of our internship requirement, the usefulness of the capstones when they're uh, structured that way. So it made me want to think about ways to get our students. We do a lot of group work and group projects and research projects, but how to actually get on the ground and see how these organizations interact. So another example of that is uh, we got to see firsthand how nonprofits coordinate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was really a fascinating study of how Team Brownsville was essentially just a few educators uh, 
public school teachers who are like, what's going on is awful and we got to do something about it. And so they started taking meals across. They started trying to provide some basic donations to the camp. And then they were able to bring in over time other nonprofits that specialized in different aspects of helping. So, for example, the World Central Kitchen is this organization that shows up in disaster relief areas and crisis areas and provides meals. And they, they do it really, really well with quality food and healthy food and fresh food, fresh meals that they cook every day for the people on the ground. And Team Brownsville has to kind of merge their volunteers to volunteer with World Central Kitchen and help coordinate the volunteers kind of showing up for the World Central Kitchen's uh, calendar dates. Just like that piece. They're working right now, we were told, with a nonprofit called Yes We Can, which is going to hire full-time teachers to show up uh, and every day in the camps and have uh, schooling every day for the children instead of being once a week. So experiential learning and then seeing kind of on the ground how organizations interact. You're, you're getting some of this in your capstone experience um, with how multiple departments in a local government interact and all the different coordination and communication um, opportunities and challenges that come with that. A lot of moving pieces. A lot of moving pieces. Um, and so I think from an education standpoint, getting students opportunities like this that you got to experience, that Mary Lou got to experience, is vital. Not just to kind of see what a, a picture of like what service looks like and who who needs service and what that looks like in comparison to a national narrative, but also just on the ground how the administration of public service works to your point, kind of brings home all the theories that we've been teaching you in the cases when you can see it firsthand when it's, you know, our buddy Dan from World Central Kitchen is like organizing us and using what we know are some good administration tactics to keep us all organized. And Andrea, the leader of Team Brownsville, working with people on the ground, uh, actual refugees who have kind of become leaders in the camp to kind of organize the food distribution. These are all things we talk about in class, but then you have like persons that you can see doing it in real time. So the big takeaway for me is more opportunities for experiential learning. I think another big question that I had is whenever people hear the words asylum seekers or refugees, automatically like something political comes to mind. And I think that's really sad and kind of disheartening because this shouldn't be a super political thing. And, um, because like you said, they're humans, they're people, they want food. <laughs> Indeed, they do, yeah. Heaven forbid. <laughs> yeah. So what are some ways as public servants that we can, I guess, neutralize these ideas of, like, this is super political. Like, like this shouldn't be a democratic or republican thing. How can we just kind of, like, humanize in a way? Yeah, I think that's... Um, um, a really important question. Uh, I too am struck um, by the politicization of refugees in particular. So I, I do think there are real immigration challenges that the U.S. experiences and that the U.S. experiences at the Texas-Mexico border. Um, I think there are real questions about um, what should our immigration policy be? What is the process for citizenship in the U.S., um, what should those numbers look like to overall strengthen the country and the U.S. way of life. Um, I think there's useful debate to have about what level of immigrants from what countries um, do you uh, allow in through a process of citizenship. So 
I don't want to discount that there are real immigration policy concerns about uh, how the U.S. should think about immigration more generally. Okay, so I said that. <laughs> and I believe that. I do think that's true. Um, refugees is a whole different thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the groups we were working with were, were people that have showed up at the U.S. border and said, I'm fearful for returning to my home country for these reasons. I want to seek asylum in the U.S. because the situation in my home country is so desperate and my personal situation in my home country is so desperate that I'm in, I have I have what I believe to be credible fear of remaining in my home country. Okay, so these are the most vulnerable people in their own society that have trusted the international order and the U.S. way of life to help out the most vulnerable in the world as they need it. Right, and so. You know, I'm with you in that it's uh, everything's political today, um, and in general, politics plays a role in everything. Yep. But the partisanship uh, related to the issue of refugees is one that is disheartening. It's one that is troubling, and it's one that we have clear historical parallels for other times when we turned refugees away that were shameful experiences for our country. One example, I mean, every. People like to use World War II examples. I think it's the most clear one for people. You know, the U.S. turned away Jewish refugees during World War II for people that were sent back, had no other places to go, and things didn't turn out so well for them. When I was growing up um, in rural Georgia, we covered this case, and this was a case that we were all horrified by, that how could we have treated uh, Jews at that moment in history that um, poorly? Okay, so you look at 2020 and you have some some situations in some countries in South America and in Central America that are are not great right now. And for particular groups of people, you're even worse. They're not safe in their home country. Um, so they come to America for a better life. Um, and independent of what the legal code says, which the legal code uh, suggests that these people uh, should be given due process um, and given an opportunity to make their case. Um, international law and customs, uh, as we were reading from the Human Rights Watch organ organization's website report earlier, um, dictate and demand that they're given due process and, and taken care of as part of that process. Um, these aren't really uh, partisan issues in my mind. They're... Um, there's some clear established legal precedent for these things. Um, and the legal code is pretty clear on these things. Our obligations historically are pretty clear. Um, so it, it doesn't strike me that it should be that partisan. Now, to your question of, uh, from a public service standpoint, how do we depoliticize or departisan these issues? I don't know. Um, I'm hoping that some of the information that we can share, um, being from Texas A&M, being from the Bush School, from our podcast here, saying, you know, there are immigration policy issues here, but what we're really concerned about is how we treat refugees and asylum seekers that have showed up at our door asking for uh, help um, to live. Um, and, you know, all I know to do is share the human stories, talk about them as humans, um, 
share our experience, um, try to highlight that this is sort of a subset of the broader immigration issues, talk about all the families and children that we saw, um, and kind of try to um, touch on the humanity piece of it. But to your point, I think, you know, as we both encountered in sharing our stories with friends um, and family and colleagues, um, not everyone seems to understand that because of their partisan lenses. Um, and, you know, I think it's tough to be hopeful about trying to break through that narrative when our own close acquaintances and friends and families sometimes have a hard time seeing the value of, of feeding refugees because of their political lens, right? Um, so I'm not super optimistic on our ability to uh, change the narrative. Um, it's a little uh, frustrating how hypersensitive the American dialogue has been to this because we don't actually take in a lot of refugees uh, in general that are bothering to go through the process. Um, in fact, in our in our own uh, state of Texas, um, uh, our governor, Greg Abbott, uh, earlier this year, uh, this is from an NPR article, January 10th, the headline is Government Gre Governor Greg Abbott says no, says new refugees won't be allowed to settle in Texas. So, you know, it is it is becoming a political issue because our governor is saying that we're not going to let any of these asylum seekers in our state to 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 settle. Now, there's questions about how many people you should resettle in each any given state, and I think that's a reasonable question. Uh, I was just looking today uh, at what's going on between the Syria and Turkey border, and Turkey is now housing 3 million Syri Syrian refugees. Um, and when you look at the number of refugees that are being accepted into the U.S., uh, for example, in 2019, according to the same NPR article, about 30,000 refugees were expected to resettle in the U.S. That is down from 110,000 in 2016. So in 2016, we had 110,000, which in a, a country of over 350 million, I think, uh, it's not a huge percentage, uh, particularly when you compare 3 million in Turkey. Um, 30,000 in 2019, given the amount that we've seen are actually here trying to, uh, that are here uh, claiming asylum as a, as an asylum case, um, 30,000 refugees um, is a third of the number of people who show up for a football game in on game day in Aggieland, right? You know, we have almost 100,000 people that are in that stadium on game day. This is one-third of the stadium of one football game that shows up to our town on any given Saturday. Um, so, you know, I'm not super hopeful about uh, depoliticizing this in part because it's being made political by both parties, but the governor of our state is saying that he's going to allow zero refugees in. That makes it political. Yeah. That makes it partisan. Yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a humbling experience. Makes you realize that your problems aren't as big as you think they are. Mm -hmm. And so... Also, while we were discussing in Brownsville, no one wants to make this journey. I mean, no one wants to do these things, but they have to because they're shared. So with that, with, with everything that we've experienced over the past week or so, what is probably the most rewarding thing that you encountered? Yeah, 
So it's weird because I think the most rewarding is also maybe the most traumatizing at the same time. Um, yeah. And the most rewarding thing I think was on the first night, my job was to pass out water bottles to people before they got to the food. And um, so I'm passing out water bottles and one uh, young girl uh, refugee who is probably eight um, insisted on standing next to me. And at the table, we also had, um, where I was passing out the waters, we also had a big bottle of sanitizer so people could clean their hands before they ate. So she insisted on standing. She's like known in the World Central Kitchen people that someone that wants to help. So she stood next to me and every person that came up before I could give them water, she sanitized their hands, right? So then, as she was doing that, two other girls, uh, who were probably six and seven, wanted to help as well. And so uh, they wanted to help pass out the waters. They just wanted to feel like they were doing something helpful. And so I let them help pass out some waters. And then on the next night, um, as we were setting up to to serve, um, several of the children uh, wanted to put on the gloves and serve with us. And so you had to put some parameters around it um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so they were allowed to do some things, but not others. But the children, even with everything they have going on, fleeing their homes, all they wanted to do was help everyone out. And um, yeah, that was probably the most rewarding thing Um there were some other moments that will stick with me that are kind of burned into my brain uh, from from helping teach. There was uh, the morning I helped teach. There were um, most of the children are pretty uh, well clothed and 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 clean and things, but not all of them. Um, and so there was one little girl who just kind of had um, snot coming out of her nose and was missing her shoes and had a dirty face and. She was really excited to have the crayons to draw the pictures on her hand and was like wanting to love on us and stuff. And then as we're getting ready to leave that, one of the, she was probably four or five, one of the, one of the little girls was wanting to play. And so part of her wanting to play is like hanging onto my leg and wanting to be swung around and played with. So those aren't really, uh, rewarding is not the word I would use for those, but those are some of the things I take away. But it was nice to just give people food. Um, and it was nice to see the, the children get, receiving the food, wanting to help. That was probably the most rewarding. And it was also really rewarding to like, see your response and see you because I'm a professor by nature. Right. So like watching how you respond and how you learn from that and watching how our team of people that we were working with kind of how it impacted them and, and kind of got them to want to do more to help asylum seekers and refugees, which again, to your point has become politicized. Um, but there it was, it was hard to imagine why. Cool. I think that's probably a, a good enough for now. Um, um, we'll have another um, recording, maybe going to some more of the statistics. We're also going to have a, a chat with our uh, our friends that we served with, Mary Lou and her her father Scott, and squad. yeah, the squad, squad. and uh, Angela. 
And uh, so we're going to uh, be recording some conversations with them and hoping to talk to some uh, immigration experts as well to kind of get their take on what the asylum seeking process has looked like historically, where we are now, why, and then uh, probably some another conversation with me about uh, uh, discretion and decision making at the administrative kind of level at some of my expertise and how some of the different tools are being used um, to different ends that we might kind of talk about from an administrative discretion standpoint. So Faith, thanks for uh, interviewing me. It's fun to be interviewed instead of being the (laughs) interviewer. And uh, we'll have more coming to you soon.